one of the major prophets of God. We have been accused, I think, at times of forcing prophecy and trying to make prophecies happen. That is not certainly my attitude, trying to make something happen. I'm simply trying to respond to some scriptures that give us direction as to what we should do. And if we do what God says to do, and that leads to certain things happening, uh, that's one thing. But we're not reading this and saying, well, I want to do that or I want to be that. We're just reading the scriptures. God says do this. We try to do it, whatever it might be. We're not trying to force God to fulfill prophecy by living where we're living. He simply told us, leave the city, go dwell in the field. And we're trying to fulfill what he told us to do. Now, if someone wants to say we're trying to force prophecy by doing that, I beg to differ. That was not the attitude that was involved. And everything certainly, no matter what, goes back to attitude. Last week, we took a look at Ezekiel 19 and 20. And we see here the church very much mentioned, as well as Israel, who is the mother of nations as well. And we always have this two-part story going through, both the story of the church and the physical Israel, because Israel is divided into spiritual and physical today. Very few have been called to spiritual Israel. We heard about that in the sermon at about the 144,000 whom Christ is choosing as his bride. Uh, It is a very limited number, whereas physical Israel has spread as the sands of the sea, even as Abraham, or God told Abraham that it would do. So he delivered a pretty severe message here about our idolatry and our breaking of God's Sabbaths in chapter 20, and how he had to scatter them in the wilderness, and how he scattered us as well. And then he says that we all have to pass under the rod and that he will purge the rebels out from among us. So it brings it back to a personal responsibility, just as we saw in chapter 18, where son or father answers for self, not for anyone else. We we all pass under the rod individually. And the point of everything is that we know that God is God. A recurring theme in Ezekiel, which we will see almost ad nauseum as we continue through this book. But he does say in chapter, or verse 40 of chapter 20, that in his holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, says the eternal God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them. So God is going to begin, after the punishments, to draw people back together. He's going to draw spiritual Israel together first. And later on in the millennium, physical Israel. So two fulfillments of these scriptures. And the church will first be accepted as a sweet savor, as per verse 41. And later on, those who survive into the millennium as physical Israelites. In the meantime, we have to come to learn to loathe ourselves. And that the things we are doing in our own sight that appear righteous to us, but that are evil to God. Before I continue on, this might be a good time as I came in today. 
you remember I mentioned in Bible study that it might be a good study sometime or a good thought process to, because we hit the same thing back in Deuteronomy in Bible study the other night about idolatry, just as we're reading about it here in Ezekiel, something that has always plagued Israel and is today plaguing modern Israel. So I suggested a really good and interesting thing to do would be to make a study or go through a thought process in examining our culture and society and see if you can identify the idols of our culture and of us ourselves today. Because the gods of Molech and the gods of wood and stone and the teraphim and the various things that Israel worshipped in the past are to us obvious idols, and we certainly would say, well, I don't worship those. But God accuses this end time nation or nations of Israel of severe idolatry, breaking the first commandment. And it is not as apparent to us, perhaps, what the idols of today might be, because we don't have leering statues or Buddhas around, do we? Here's just one paper. Someone took me up on that and uh, wrote it up. And I think that we'll see that this, a lot of this is confirmed today in Scripture. First one they wrote was money. And God says you can't serve two masters. You'll serve one or the other. And uh, a materialistic society is certainly, I think, at one of the head of the list of idols. Not the head of the list, but certainly very high on the list of things that we worship today. And in that sense, you could do a sermon or two or three about the false god of money. And even our money itself is a false fiat currency with no real value. And an idol has no real value. Entertainment, TV, movies, music, entertainers, actors, musicians, etc. All kind of lumped together as one idol. And that's true. And I think it permeates things far deeper than we even begin to realize. Now in America, we or promote proponents of apple pie, Chevrolet, baseball, and things American, aren't we? You know, it occurred to me this morning when I was thinking about it, one of our most revered idols of the past 30, 40 years, and I may get flack for this one, one of our most revered idols is Disney. We have Disneyland, we have Disney World, we have movies and cartoons from Disney. Do you realize that watching Disney is one of the most diabolical things that you can have either you or your children do? Walt and Roy Disney are very much, or were very much, a part of the New World Order. Virtually everything they do is diabolical and satanic and Mother Earth oriented and is designed to destroy the family, to destroy respect in the family, destroy respect for God as creator and point us to Mother Earth as the one to worship. Children's cartoons of any nature are designed precisely the same way. 
They are designed to destroy our families and to destroy our culture. The video games and the little various electronic gadgets that our children play games on. Almost all of those games have severe violence. And the whole idea of the game, whatever it is, is to kill, wreck, and destroy something. Be it men, be it animals, be it uh, flying dinosaurs, space aliens, or whatever. Almost every game has that as its basis. Let me give you just one example of a movie that I watched. Probably most of us had. Some of us may have even bought it to show our children. Take one, and some of these are very subtle. Some of them are quite open. You see, parents watched Bugs Bunny when they were young, perhaps, and it didn't seem that bad. And perhaps it wasn't. It was a beginning, though, of a slide downhill, and the mind had to be prepared very subtly at first, and then later on it turned raunchier and raunchier and more plain. The same is true of the satanic music that is listened to in our culture today. We had Big Band and Glenn Miller and things that had melody and tune. We had things that were true love stories. And then we had a change where blues and pop music were combined together to form rock. And some of that was fairly innocuous, except for the older generation. And looking back, Little Richard and Elvis and Rick Nelson and those people were really, really tame compared to the stuff today. Elvis wiggled a lot, but the boy could sing. He could sing a love song. So it started very subtly, and over the last 50 years, it has degenerated to where it is almost totally satanic. Cartoons did the same thing. They started out as entertainment, as something cute, as something entertaining. Now, Satan appears as an angel of light. Let's understand that. Satan appears as an angel of light. And there couldn't be anything wrong with things to entertain our kids, could there? Yes, there could. Let's take Nemo. That's where I was starting. Now, that one wasn't a bad one, was it? That was just cute, wasn't it? They showed this little fish and all the troubles and trials and difficulties he went through, getting lost. And it was cute and narrated by gays and lesbians. Oh, excuse me. And others. But it was, a, on the surface, a cute movie. However, it was very, very subtle. So all the dangers that that little fish went through, sharks and octopuses and you name it, it all boiled down with a message at the end. Of all the terrible things in the ocean 
that could possibly hurt or kill you or be a danger to you, the worst possible thing that could happen to you would be in an aquarium of man. Think about that. God gave man dominion over the animals, the birds, the fowls, the fishes. God made man in his own image. God made man to be an inheritor of the universe. He made animals, fish and birds, as our servants, those things that we could enjoy, have dominion or rule over, and even eat. But the Mother Earth people today, the worshippers of the false god Mother Earth, teach us that we evolved and that the birds, the fish, the animals are just as good as we are and, in fact, better than we are. And if you're going to solve the problems of the Earth, the best thing to do is destroy mankind. And that is exactly what they intend to do, to reduce the population of man on earth by 90%. Our nation itself intervenes when there is famine and starvation and civil war only when it has to do with our interests, as per oil or whatever that makes our materialistic society what it is. You can have genocide in equatorial Africa, and people can be killed by the millions. We don't go in there and stop it. We only go where it serves our interests. We are not that humanitarian. In fact, very subtly, Hollywood, the whole educational system, has been infiltrated by people who wish to destroy respect for parents, who have desired to make us a nation of illiterate peasants, and they're very quickly bringing that to pass. We are a nation now that is way behind on educational levels. We are a people who can hardly write, can not spell, They have removed true teaching tools and replaced them with games and TVs and videos that do not teach us those things. It is planned and it is diabolical. Now, I realize there are a lot of teachers out there who have the best interests of their classes and their children in mind and are trying to teach them and feel an obligation to teach. And yet they themselves are very subtly deceived and to what the purposes of the educational system are. It is a de-education system. Your schools, public schools, are designed to dumb down our people and make them into peasants. The No Child Left Behind program is designed to make sure that our children, all of them, are left behind the rest of the world so that we can be destroyed. We're going to see this very clearly in Ezekiel as we go on, but I wanted to bring some of it up now. Do we buy into evolution? There are those promulgating the idea in the world and in the church 
that angel or demons married women before the flood, and that that's the only way the pyramids and some of those things could have been built because we simply don't understand how they were built, nor do we think the power and energy was there to build them. You know what's behind that? What's behind that is a very subtle acceptance of evolution which has been pounded into us from children on that mankind was not as smart in Noah's day as he is now. That's what we have accepted if we believe trash like that. Christ very clearly said that the angels cannot cohabit with women. In so many words. Don't we realize that at creation, Adam and Eve had brilliant, sharp minds. And that those people who used to live a thousand years didn't have Alzheimer's. Their minds were sharp. How much could a person learn if he lived with a good mind for a thousand years? How much technological development have we done in the last 50, 100, or 150 years with people that die at age 60, 70, and 80 or lose their minds at 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80 who are eating junk and who have degenerated terribly I believe that the IQs and the education level of those people back then was far superior to yours and mine today. I look at the things that David wrote about God and the things he wrote about the stars, and it blows me away. I couldn't write stuff like that. I don't understand what he understood when he laid out there with his sheep and looked up at the stars at night. With our tremendous telescopes, we're just beginning to understand what the ancients knew. Just beginning. You're doing your children a disservice by letting them watch most anything from Hollywood. Cartoons and Disney are among the most diabolical things that have ever been perpetrated upon our society. Sometimes subtle, sometimes very open. But the message is always there. I thought Nemo was cute too until I began to think about it. The worst thing that can happen to a fish is to be in an aquarium to be enjoyed by man. Very worst thing be a lot worse than being swallowed by a shark. There's a message there. Mankind is evil. Nature is good. I got sidetracked. List of idols. Medical doctors. Miracle cures. There are many scriptures that show that we put the medical profession ahead of God. And there's some very severe condemnation of that in Scripture. Cars, clothes, personal looks, all of these things are rooted in pride and vanity, of course, which is, self is the biggest idol. But the way we, what we drive and how we look in it 
is big in America. The clothes we wear, I mean, God wants us to wear clothes. He doesn't want us to go without. But on the other hand, the way we dress shows many times a great deal of pride, and that is an idol. Children and family can become our idols. Some people vote on family and children to the point that they forget God. You wouldn't think of family being an idol, but it can be, because a lot of people put their children ahead of God. God says, worship me and no one but me, and we sometimes unwittingly allow our children to imbibe the things of this world that are ungodly, then we are putting, but I want to, ahead of thou shalt not, aren't we? Think about it. Pride, arrogance, better than you attitude. We put ourselves above others. God says don't do that. And we're to be meek and humble. Did I say now, intelligence? It's interesting how we worship our own mind. I got a letter from someone just last night that I read. A very meek and humble approach. I said, here's what I've been studying and this is what I think. Please show me if I'm wrong. Please show me if this is not correct. Now, for someone who studies something and comes up with their own conclusion, what is the attitude you usually hear? It's not that. Usually the attitude is, I found this and it's right. You can't show me wrong. I'm going to go do this. You're wrong. So usually pride, vanity, and arrogance. Because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Knowledge puffs up. Whether it be true knowledge or false knowledge, the very fact that someone thinks they understand something that you don't, they usually get an attitude of pride, vanity, and ego, and it often drives them away, and it need not. I've seen that so often, and it is such a breath of fresh air to get a letter that says, you know, I've been studying this, boy, I could be wrong. Please show me if it's right or wrong. Now, there's an attitude you can work with. See, it's all about attitude. There's someone who's saying, you know, boy, I'm going to stumble over something. I'm not that bright. I know I'm not that smart. This appears this way. Let's discuss it and please show me if I'm wrong. You seldom see that in the church of God anymore. Someone thinks they found something that nobody else understands or that they're smart about. It usually takes a totally different twist. And usually there is idolatry of their own intelligence and their superior insight that is involved. That's a sad thing because there will be differences. They need to be resolved. But where there is pride and arrogance and vanity, knowledge drives apart rather than pulls together. There's where the problem lies. That's the problem in the church today. The church overall is arrogant, proud, and vain. And no one will listen to anyone else. And therefore, they scatter and scatter and scatter. In other words, it's a satanic attitude that creates division. 
God said it would be there. So our own mind, our own intelligence, can lead to idolatry and create problems in the church. Uh, self, well, we've been discussing that. Country, city, church, sports team, state, uh, club, etc. Accomplishments, you're around people, all they want to talk about is the things they've done. Well, I did this, and I did this, and everybody gets bored, but they go on, they're excited about it, all the things they've done. Personal experience, same thing. Background, I'm from Boston, or London, or Mississippi. Sometimes we brag about things when we have nothing to brag about. But we do anyway, don't we? Appearance. See, I guess I said that. Uh, education, schooling. I've been to college. I have a degree. I'm above you. Nah. You know, I've seen people who didn't go beyond the second or third or fourth grade who had far more understanding and wisdom educated themselves, who have a far better grasp of life and the things in life that are important than people that have PhDs. Far greater. Personal possessions, we get pride in things that we own, and yet God says very clearly in a man's life that this is not about the things that he possesses, but we can be proud of those and make them an idol. And we can even be proud of our sins. That was the last one on this list. Some people like to go back and recount all their sins. Well, I used to blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm just sorry you used to blah, 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 but I don't want to hear about it. Besides all that, if it was washed away under the blood of Christ, what right do you have to bring it up and talk about it anyway? Why be proud of sin? Maybe we haven't really repented of the attitude that led to that sin in the first place, or we wouldn't be so prone to tell everybody about how bad we were. Maybe we were proud about how bad we were. Isn't that part of our slang today? I'm bad, man. That's about as vain and egocentric as I'm good. Just no matter which ditch you want to be in, I guess. Well, I could go on and on, and we all could, but I appreciate that somebody took the time and the energy and effort to begin to categorize some of the gods that we have. How are you going to get rid of your idols if you don't ever even identify them? If it's not defined, it's hard to get rid of. But if you'll sit down and define it, you'll have a better chance of overcoming it. Okay. Let's go to Ezekiel 21 today, then. Ezekiel said, well, the last verse of 20, he says, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, does he not speak parables? They didn't understand the things Ezekiel was saying. Perhaps a lot of what he said could not be understood until today by us upon whom the ends of the world have come. They were a people in captivity in Babylon, and... Ezekiel was talking about things they just simply couldn't get. I, I, I don't get it. What's he saying? 
Well, I think it should be becoming clear to us now. Let's go on in chapter 1 and see if we can see some of this is clear. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. He was in Babylon. And drop your word toward the holy places and prophesy against the land of Israel. Now, this is an end-time prophecy. I think we've established that. And Israel today is not in the Middle East. Israel today is in America, South Africa, Australia, Western Europe. There's a few Jews in Israel today. I think probably there are more Edomites there than there are true Jews. There are people who say they're Jews and aren't. There are some true Jews there, I'm sure. But not most of them. So when he talks about prophesy and set your face against Jerusalem, he's talking about spiritual Jerusalem, the church, A, and B, he's talking about physical Jerusalem, wherever, or I mean physical Israel, wherever they may be. Because when this was written, Israel was long gone from Jerusalem. And the Jews had been taken into captivity from there. So, as an end-time prophecy, it's written to those people, wherever they may be, scattered upon the face of the earth. Say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I am against you, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. So let's make a separation. The righteous and the wicked will be separated. Seeing then that I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north. You usually looked at Israel from a north-south, Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south, rather than an east-west situation. So throughout all Israel, he says, the sword will come. Now, maybe when it says the righteous and the wicked, there's an inference here that even most of the church is going to come under the sword as well. Because we know from other scriptures that 90% of the church will go into the tribulation and most of them will have to die by the sword. Only a 10% remnant almost will be saved out. And what's the point? Verse 5, that all flesh may know that I, I the eternal, have drawn forth my sword and it shall not return any more. So what he does to Israel, and this is a prophecy against Israel, is going to show the whole world that he is God. Sigh, therefore, you son of man, with the breaking of your loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. Breaking of your loins means the strength goes out of your legs. It's going to be such a horrible thing that it causes you to sigh, and to cry, as Isaiah said, and causes your knees to be weak. With bitterness sigh before their eyes. Show in your mood and your attitude how sorrowful you are about what has to be done. And it shall be, verse 7, when they say to you, Wherefore sigh you, and why are you sighing? That you shall answer for the news, the tidings, because it comes. It's not just that it was all written, but it's actually coming. We can see it coming now. Years ago, we talked about when it comes and prophesied about times that we thought it would come. We don't need to do that anymore. We can see it before our very eyes. 
It's about to break forth. <coughs> and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. When the punishment comes on the nations of Israel here at the end, it is going to come with such sound and fury and force that will make Desert Storm look like a picnic. Because the whole world, a great company of nations, will come against us. And they won't be there just to depose a leader. They will be there to take vengeance upon a nation that they have revered, a nation they have been jealous of, a nation they have feared and respected, and whose respect has turned to hate and bitterness. And it will be their intent to destroy or take into captivity every man, woman, and child among us. That will be their goal, their purpose, and their attitude. So every spirit will faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Verse 8, again, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy, and say... So here's, there was one prophecy there. The destruction is coming, and it's going to make everyone scared to death, to the point of dying. Another prophecy. Son of man, prophesy. Say, thus says the Eternal, say, a sword. A sword is sharpened and also polished. A sword is made ready. You know, before you go to war, you oil your gun, and you get your ammo gathered up, and you get your gear on. Or, in those days, same thing. You polished your sword to a high shine, and you sharpened it as sharp as you could possibly get it. So you made it prepared and ready to go out and kill. So he says, a sword is sharpened and furbished. It is sharpened to make a sword, a terrible slaughter. It is polished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? Should we make light? Of that which is about to come? Shall we say, ah, those prophecies were for ancient Israel. They have nothing to do with today. Shall we laugh at it? It condemns the rod of my son as every tree. I think that's a poor way of translating that. My margin says, it is the rod of my son that despises every tree. This sword is the sword of Christ. The sword of the Son of God. And it despises every tree. A tree is symbolic of man. A tree is symbolic of church organizations. And the sword of Christ is a two-edged sword that can despise anything. It can cut and destroy anything. There is nothing that can stand against it. That's the point here. And he has given it to be furbished that it may be handled this sword is sharpened, and it is furbished, furbished to give it to the hand of the slayer, that it may be handled. What do soldiers do with their guns? They hold them, and they turn them, and they look at them, and they polish them, and they play with them. They handle them. And you do the same thing with a sword. You handle it, you check the sharpness, you check the shine, you check to make sure everything is just right and prepared before you go out to kill with it. Verse 12, Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. 
It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Not just the people, but the leaders as well. We'll read more about the leaders here in just a moment. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon your thigh. Uh, you smote your thigh. Actually, it was a little more interior than that, where you put your hand to swear. So he's saying, by your very manhood, show that this is to come. Because it is a trial, and what if the sword condemn even the rod? It shall be no more, says the eternal. Let me read that in the margin. When the trial has been, what then shall they not also belong to the despising rod? I don't know if that adds a lot to it, but the rod of God, what if it condemned even it? None of us have it made. We all must overcome, grow, change, be like we ought to be. That's the force of prophecy, is change, grow, become godly, and then this thing will not happen to you. Do we hear that? I mean, that's, that's the message of the prophets. Change your conduct. Change who you worship. Change where your heart is. You know, your heart is where your treasure is, Christ says. Where is your treasure? Is it in God? Or is it in things that interest you? Where is your treasure? What do you treasure? What do you spend your time doing? See, time is a treasure too. That's why Paul tells us, redeem the time. Don't waste it. What do you use your time for? Is it seeking God? Or is it, oh, I need to do this, or I need to do that, or I want to do this? Where is your heart? I would say that we are not wholehearted yet. Any of us. Because we still have difficulty finding time for God. We don't have time to go to Bible study. We have other things we need to do, I guess, to come ahead of God. That have a come ahead of studying God's Word or listening to it. Well, maybe the preacher's boring. I'm sorry. I'll work on that. But where is our heart? We came out here to seek God. Have we settled in and now we're seeking other things? Does our favorite program come on some new moon nights? Or, you know, what, what is it? We're too tired or, or we need to do something else. I don't know what. Traditionally, in Worldwide Church of God over the years, about 40% showed up at Bible study. About 40% of any given congregation on average. We first started Bible studies here. I kept hearing, well, we ought to have more Bible studies. We ought to have more Bible studies. Now I see people beginning to, eh, there's something else we need to do tonight. Does that indicate an attitude? I don't know. Perhaps it does. Are we slipping back into the same ways we were? Will God have to shake us up? I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there for what it's worth. What do we treasure? It doesn't always have to be money. Or our thoughts, our energies, our actions with God or with other things. 
Verse 14. You therefore, son of man, prophesy, preach, smite your hands together, and let the sword be doubled a third time, the sword of the slain. Not just come out and slay, but he says, clap your hands, tell them it's going to come three times as bad. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which enters into their private chambers. You know, there are people who are at the head of society today who think that if they can kill 90% of the peasants and preserve their own lives, whether it be in underground bunkers or places in Paraguay or Uruguay, if they can figure out where they're going, that they'll be protected. God says they'll enter into their private chambers. They think they're going to get away with it. They think they're going to survive it. Not the leaders of Israel. That's what this is talking about. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright. It is wrapped up for the slaughter. Sword is made ready. Go you one way or other, either on the right hand or on the left, wherever your face is set. I will also smite my hands together, and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Eternal, have said it. He told Ezekiel, you clap your hands together as a sign. But he said, when I clap my hands together, the sword's coming. Verse 18, the word of the Eternal came to me again. He kept having these revelations from God. Say, also you son of man, appoint you two ways that the sword of the king of Babylon may come. Both two shall come forth out of one land and choose you a place. Choose it at the head of the way to the city. I think the new King James might make this a little clearer. It says, fork of the roads. Which way is it going to go? Is Will there be repentance? Will there be forgiveness? Or will the sword come? We're at the fork of the road. The church is far more at the fork of the road, even than the physical nation. The physical nation is very quickly coming to the point of no return. Maybe it's already there. The church is very close to it. God is going to do some things that are going to make bare his holy arm and make it known that he is God from the east to the west. It's going to be done through the church. And people will then have to make up their minds whether... That is God doing that and gather to build Jerusalem in the temple. Or they will go into the war and be destroyed. I think that the decision is already made in God's mind as far as this nation is concerned. Because he says very clearly, don't even pray for this nation. They will not repent. It's a done deal. Just waiting for him to clap his hands. And it will happen. You know what his position is right now? Got his arms spread. I think that's the analogy. He's about ready to clap his hands. A point away that the sword may come to Rabbath of the Ammonites and to Judah in Jerusalem, the defense. Those who think that they are safe. That their safety is all in place. Well, that applies to the church because most every organization says 
here with us, we're all going to the place of safety. All those lay of sins will be left behind, but our group's going to the place of safety. Not what the scripture says. It says that he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness. All seven churches exist today, and all seven will have people come from them who will repent and who will be gathered. So it's not any one organization at all. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, or the fork of the roads, the hour of decision, which road will he take? I think that the king of Babylon right today is King George, who just, well, so-called defeated Iraq. At least he posed the ruler. That will change when Babylon goes down, because Babylon has to fall twice. There will be a new leader of Babylon when the present leader of Babylon, America, is killed by the beast and the false prophet. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images or teraphim or the occult. We have leaders in our own capital today who look to the occult, who are part of occult societies, masons, skull and bones, you name it. That's where they go for their answers. He looked in the liver, that is, internally. That means inside himself. Our leaders are looking to themselves. And they're looking to the occult. At his right hand was a divination for Jerusalem to appoint rams or battering rams or destruction, in other words. Captains, it says in the King James. To open the mouth in the slaughter, to lift up the voice with shouting, to appoint battering rams against the gates, to cast them out and to build a fort. Our own leaders, the leaders of Babylon today, have in mind to destroy this population. They're letting it be overrun by Gentile peoples in order to help destroy it. They're doing it on purpose. They can stop it. They won't. Some years ago, I said, would you rather be gored or bushwhacked? We decided we'd rather be bushwhacked. In early American terms, or at least of the West, you know what bushwhack meant? And then you wanted to kill someone. You didn't want to face them. You didn't want to let them know what you were doing, so you would hide out in the bushes, and you would let them ride past, and you would shoot them in the back. That's what bushwhack meant. We have a population today that is going on thinking that our nation has the, and our leadership has the finest ideas and thoughts about us, and that they want to continue the American dream. No, they want to make it the American nightmare and shatter it and send us into death and captivity. That's what they're planning. That's what they're doing. That's why they're dumbing us down and feeding us Disney and cartoons. And our educational system is designed to dumb us down so that all are left behind, not just one child. We're being left behind the Chinese and the Japanese and the Germans and whoever else. Our children simply cannot even begin to compete scientifically or mathematically with the students of other nations. This is by design. 
It's not because we're stupider. It's because we're ignorant. That our school system has made us ignorant. So that we can't spell, read, or write. Barely. Semi-literate at this point. Verse 23, it shall be to them as a false divination in their sight, to them that have sworn oaths. They swear oaths when they take office in this nation today to defend the Constitution. And then our own president called it just another piece of paper. And on every hand, is going against the Constitution. Congress is going against the Constitution. They made all kinds of laws and all kinds of tax collection agencies and federal reserves, banking system that are absolutely contrary to the Constitution. Now, they've taken an oath that it means nothing. But he will call to remembrance the iniquity that they may be taken. They're not going to get away with it, but only so long. God will stop it. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered... You've done so much that I can't forget it, God says. In that your transgressions are discovered, they'll be found out, so that in all your doings your sins do appear. Because I say that you are come to remembrance, you shall be taken with the hand. Now, am I really talking about the right people here? Let's go on. Verse 25. And you... Profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end. When will iniquity have an end? A culture, a society, a way of life that is iniquitous, lawless, and ungodly will end when Christ comes to this earth and sets up a peaceful, commandment-keeping world. So this isn't talking about Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the throne being overturned to Scotland and then to England and then to Christ. Uh, Well, we're not down to that point yet. Now, maybe in a broader overall historical sense, that is true. But this is an end-time prophecy that is set with a wicked prince of Israel just before iniquity will have an end. That's the setting of this prophecy. Now, in the church, we've looked around and thought, well, the only prince that we know of in Israel would be Prince Charles. So, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, the church was saying, well, maybe Prince Charles is the wicked prince. And indeed, there are many, many books that have been written about Prince Charles showing that he is the power behind the New World Order and that he is that wicked prince. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I've read two or three of those books. The book that you're reading at the moment about Prince Charles sure seems right. And then you'll read one about an Austrian or a German, and that sure sounds right. Or a Pope, and that sure sounds right. Well, there will be two beings, a beast and a false prophet. But it's talking about a wicked prince in Israel, so it's talking about the leadership of Israel at the end time, okay? It'll, it'll broaden this to princes a little later on here. But those who rule Israel today, 
are wicked. Some of them are not, as, as has been offered, well-meaning men who think that they have the key to world peace. No. They consort the occult. They seek demons and worship Satan. And they're evil men who put on a good front. That's what it's all about. Thus says the eternal God, verse 26, Remove the diadem, take off the crown, dethrone these people, the wicked princes of Israel at the end. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, abase him that is high. God is going to turn things upside down. going to change it. Now this can have to do with changing it from the leadership by physical Israel to those who will lead spiritual Israel. Remember Ezekiel 17, just a few chapters back where it says that he will take a twig off the cedar. It's a chapter about the church specifically. And he will plant it in the wilderness and it will grow from being dry into a stately cedar. Remember Micah 4 where it says, O virgin daughter of Israel, to you shall come the first dominion. In other words, God is going to take it away from those leaders of physical Israel, and he's going to give dominion to the church. And the church will be under Christ. And of course, ultimately, he will come and take charge personally. But he gives control to the church. Doesn't he give control to the two witnesses? so that they can go anywhere in Israel or on earth and turn water into blood and create plagues wheresoever they wish, and that if anybody tries to hurt them, fire will come from their mouths and incinerate them. God is going to give that kind of power to his church. And the world cannot stop it. God is going to exalt that which has been low and debase the leaders of this nation who have thought they were high. High in power, high in might, high in sin. And God is going to exalt those who are willing to turn from sin and give them that kind of power. I will overturn it, overturn it, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. <coughs> Traditionally, we followed the Historians and commentators who say that it was overturned from Rehoboam to Jeroboam, from Perez to Zerah, and then it went to Ireland through the Scarlet Ribbon, and then it went to Scotland and to England, and next it would go to Christ, and how Jeremiah took uh, the princes and so on to Ireland. That may be true in a broad, general sense. I meant to bring a another translation up here, and I left it back there, but where it says, I will overturn, 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 most of the translations say, I will ruin, ruin, ruin. King, I uh, mean the uh, New King James says, I will pervert, pervert, pervert. And it shall be no more. It'll be destroyed. Until he come, who's right it is. I think that will be given to Zerubbabel first as a human being who will build a temple, rebuild Jerusalem, 
as a type of Christ, and then it will be turned over to Christ himself when he returns. He's going to give first dominion to his church with power over the rest of mankind and Satan. Then Christ will return. Maybe we could plug in several different analogies here if it's talking in a sense about the princes of a spiritual Israel. It was turned overturned from Sardis to Herbert Armstrong, from Herbert Armstrong to the Dukakis, and next it will be turned over to God's true temple at the end, and then to Christ himself. I mentioned something there in Ezekiel 17 about Joe Sr. and Joe Jr. and how the story absolutely fits what happened in the church. And then when someone brought up and said, well, you had Joe Sr. and Joe Jr., what about in physical Israel? We got Bush Sr. who talked about the New World Order very openly in the Thousand Points of Light, the Illuminati, and so on during his presidency. And now we have his son who is enacting it, who is actually doing it. The, the parallel is almost spooky, isn't it? God says he's going to turn this thing, whole thing around and give it to those who are humble and meek and will use it properly and will be obedient. The iniquity has to go away, both in the church and in the physical nation. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the eternal God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach or their reviling, the things that they say about Israel. Why does it bring up the Ammonites here? Even say you, the sword, the sword is drawn, for the slaughter it is furbished to consume because of the glittering. So not only to Israel, but to the Ammonite, he says. Who were Ammon and Moab? We look upon them modernly as the nation of Jordan. I will not be at all surprised if it turns out that there are an awful lot of Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, in a circle primarily centered in Utah, Idaho, western Wyoming, western Colorado, northern Arizona, where the Mormons are and have influence. I think that we will see that. Isaiah 15 and 16 show that Moab and Ammon are told to protect God's people and that the treasures and the things that they have laid up will be given to God's people. Where is God going to gather his people? I believe right here in this area. I believe that has been made very, very clear. So if God's people are to make use of those things that those people have, I'd say they're probably in the same area too. The only place on earth named Moab is in Utah. Moab and Ammon, close relationship and are always, generally always, lumped together, though not right here. So, a sword is being brought against not only Israel, but maybe those who dwell within Israel. There is a scripture that says all those people that are coming into our country today are going to see this coming and see it happening, and suddenly they're going to turn around and hightail it back across the border. They're going home. They'll go back where they came from. Ooh, this American dream turned into a nightmare. I'm out of here. It's going to change. So, the Ammonites are going to receive the sword coming from God as well. 
while they see vanity to you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you upon the necks of them that are slain of the wicked, whose day is come when their iniquity shall have an end. I would say, based on that scripture, that Ammon and Moab are going to be some of the peoples who turn on God's people, who revile us, who hate us, and try to destroy us. And yet God warns them in Isaiah 15 and 16 to be very careful and take care of God's people, not try to hurt them. But this shows, I think, that they took the wrong fork in the road. They did not heed the warning of Isaiah 16. So the sword will come upon them as well. Shall I cause it to return into his sheath? I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your nativity. It will be very interesting to see, I think, pretty shortly, for sure, where Moab and Ammon were created, where the land of their nativity is, because they are very close in relationship to Israel. And the nativity of Moab and Ammon is common with the nativity and creation of Israel. And they'll be punished in the place of their creation and nativity. Where is Israel today? Is it in the Middle East? You don't find many Israelites in the Middle East. You don't even find many Jews in the Middle East. You have people who say they are Jews but are not. Where is the land of creation and nativity? I just read a U.S. News and World Report article, and it was in National Geographic recently, but the land of create, creation and nativity of all peoples or the cradle of civilization is in equatorial Africa. By tracing skulls and uh, growing hair on people, they've determined that uh, that's the land of Eden. I question that severely. But I think that perhaps that area that we have thought was the land of creation and nativity may turn out not to be so. We shall see. Keep that thought in mind. Anyway, that's a sideline. Verse 31, And I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow against you in the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hand of brutish men and skillful to destroy. So Israel and Ammon are going to be turned over to people who really know how to kill. You shall be for fuel to the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Eternal, have spoken it. But I think rather than get into chapter 22, uh, we'll just stop right there for today. That's probably enough to digest and think about, and uh, we'll get pick it up next time.